the gospel. That this life is not all there is. And Christ will come and make everything right. And we will have eternity with him. And within that, I'm dismissing children for children's church. That's ages 4 through first grade. And you can follow Pastor Neil out this north door. You see, what we've learned with uh, Ukraine invading Russia, once again, is that we as human beings don't have the answer. We don't. We are not going to save ourselves. It's not going to happen. One of the ways, though, that we can be united in prayer is be praying for 548 Awana clubs in Ukraine where 25,000 kids are enrolled in that program. Be praying for what God wants to do in their hearts during this time. And here's what I'm going to tell you. In the midst of the chaos that's taking place, God is still going to accomplish His purposes. He's still going to advance His kingdom, and He may even do it through very small and insignificant means, at least in the eyes of this world. I want to tell you about Gladys Isleward. You may not have any idea who she is. She was a housemaid in London in the 1920s. Thought she was destined for that life and the drabness of it all. And then Christ got a hold of her life and changed her. And she got a vision for how God might want to use her and bringing the gospel to China, of all places. And so she applied to the China Inland Mission to become a missionary, to take the gospel to a place where people have not heard about Jesus. The problem was that Gladys was super good at conversation and engaging people. She wasn't so good at reading books and retaining knowledge. And so she was actually rejected. Rejected. But Gladys was convinced that God had called her to China. So she saved every penny that she made. And eventually in 1930, October 5th, caught the train to the Orient, the Orient Express. There really was a train called the Orient Express. It went through Europe and then to Russia and to the other end all the way to the, to the Pacific Ocean. Here was the problem, though. As she went with her two bags, one filled with food, the other filled with pots and pans, there was a Russian border war between China and Russia. And as she went through Russia and got to the end of the train, the, troop, uh, the train was filled with troops, and they were not going to let her enter China through Russia. And at one point, the train stopped... And that was it. But she'd gone too far, so she had to walk through the night with her two bags in a place she knew nothing of to get back to the nearest city and catch another train to Manchuria. But even Manchuria wouldn't let her in to, into China. So she had to catch a boat all the way to Japan and then come around and enter into China. 
Well, she had come at the invitation of a woman named Jeannie Lawson, who was a missionary there. And Jeannie was at the end of her journey, and she knew it. But Jeannie had lived a pretty rough and gruff life. And so she wasn't very impressed at the sacrifices that Gladys had to make to get there. In fact, she wasn't a very gracious hostess. What Jeannie ran was an inn for muleers, or mule train people, basically, who brought you know, goods through, through mules and you know, were bring, distributing them throughout China. And, you know, it was kind of like being, basically, distributing the gospel at a truck stop to get that, you know, the message out. Well, the work was very hard and rough and made what, you know, Gladys had experienced in England like child's play. But it was here that Gladys learned Chinese, interacting with these muleers. And even after Jeannie died, God was still going to use Gladys. See, this whole thing, this whole inn kind of went to the wayside when Jeannie died. But Gladys was then hired as, listen to this, as a foot inspector. A foot inspector. You see, in China at the time, there was a, you know, a cultural thing that, that women's beauty was associated with the size of their feet. And so, as little children, these young girls would have their feet bound to make them as small as possible. And maybe it was appealing from an aesthetic standpoint, but it crippled these little girls. And so eventually they, had, they did away with that. But you know, those type of habits die hard. And so she was hired as the official foot inspector to go house to house and check out feet, but also to share the gospel. An amazing thing. And she became all of a sudden influential. In fact, at one point, she was sent in to a prison that had an uprising to quell that situation. She had that kind of respect. But other things were going on in China at the time. Remember, we're heading into World War II. There's a rebel group led by a man named Mao Zedong. There's also Japan who invades China during World War II. And during that time, she is... She is uh, assisting uh, villagers in the area of the province she's been stationed in, Yangcheng. And it, eventually, she has to lead a hundred orphans and, and children that she's adopted over the mountains from the Japanese invaders all across the Yellow River to save these children. Years later, she ends up being what's called a, at a Bible church a Bible woman. And this is a position that is usually only given to Chinese women who are assigned with evangelism and doing works of charity because they know their culture. But Alice, I mean Gladys had so assimilated to the Chinese culture that she was assigned to this and was very effective and planted seeds of the gospel that are alive today. You know, Gladys' story has actually been captured in a book called The Small Woman by a man named Alan Burgess. And actually a Hollywood movie was made about her, starring Ingrid Bergman, for those of us who uh, are a little older, who was an A-list actress in 1958, called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. Her impact 
made an impact even on Hollywood. Like, wow, God has really used this woman. Think about this. With the might of the most powerful men and nations in conflict, God uses this insignificant, seemingly weak, uneducated woman to have a powerful impact on the nation of China. And again, the seeds of the gospel had been planted and are still bearing fruit today. You see, God uses sometimes the weak things to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. We've been going through a series about the seven churches of Asia Minor. And if you're just getting into this series, maybe you want to go back and look at some of those. But Jesus is addressing seven churches. And today he's going to address a church that, at least in the world's eyes, seems weak. Seems insignificant. Seems like, ah, it's just something that's going to pass away one day. But in the eyes of Jesus, it's precious. It is treasured because of their devotion and faith to him. And Jesus is opening the door to them and to honor his kingdom. So, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in to see what the Lord has for us as we look at this sixth church. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to redeem mankind because we could not redeem ourselves. I pray you'll do your redemptive work today and help somebody to see you and your beauty and the blessing of following you and knowing you. And we trust you that you have all of history in your hand and are going to bring it to your right conclusion. But now we want to be faithful to hear from you So again, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and help us respond in in spirit and in truth to all of what you want to reveal to us as you spoke to this church so long ago and are speaking to us today. So Lord Jesus, do your work in our midst, I pray. Amen and amen. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up at verse 7. And this is a church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, in Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, just some quick details about the church in Philadelphia. It is 33 miles south of Sardis, which we talked about last week, and was called the Gateway. If you look at this, this is kind of at the, it really is, well, it was kind of the apex of the, of the eastern border here. It was called the Gateway to the East, because along the trade routes to the uh, provinces of Lydia, of Phrygia, and Mysia. And it was originally made by the Greeks who colonized the area as an outpost of Greek culture, bringing in this to Eastern cultures. Now the namesake, Philadelphia. I'm sure you know that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. This actually came out of a relationship between two brothers. The Pergamum king Eumenes II and his brother Attalus, who was his, his prince. Eumenes went to Greece to fight a war, and his brother was in his stead, Attalus. And there was a rumor that Eumenes had been killed, and so Attalus was made king in his stead. But it turned out to be a lie. And as Eumenes returned, he relinquished the throne to his brother because of his love and respect for him. In turn, Eumenes named a city uh, for his brother, at least in title, as the lover of the brother. He renames the city Philadelphia. Also, we have to understand that this is a place during this Roman rule that was really a postal route, going from Troas to Pergamum to Sardis to Philadelphia. It's also a place that was near volcanoes and they had earthquakes. And that plagued the area so much so that people actually moved out of the city because they didn't want to have buildings falling on them. And last of all, the gospel probably came to this place through disciples of Paul, who probably took the gospel, first of all, to the local synagogue. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew bringing that message to the Jewish people, because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and then to the Greek. Unfortunately, if you read the book of Acts, after a while, some people reject the gospel. They reject Jesus, and they reject his followers. And most likely, these new believers in Christ were kicked out of the synagogue. The door was shut to them. And we don't know if other type of persecution took place, but they were being accused of followers of a false Messiah. So this is what this church is dealing with. But Jesus knows what his church needs, and he knows how to address them. So let's go back to what he says. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, I write, the, write these are the words of him who is holy. In the Greek, there's no, there's no um, conjunction. It would probably be better understood as, as a comma. To the one who is the holy one. And true. The one who is the true one. Who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And what these are, are words of reassurance 
I'm a true God and Savior. These are the words of the Holy One. You notice the songs we sang today? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. This is what's being applied to Jesus. He is equated with the Father, with Yahweh. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says this, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. This is talking about Jesus' deity. That Jesus actually was God in the flesh when he came and dwelt on this earth. And when the word holy means set apart. First of all, without moral flaw or defect. But also set apart in that there is no one like him. No one like him. He is holy other. So this is how Jesus introduces himself to his church. The next thing he says, I am the true one. Also an attribute of God. But that has a twofold meaning as well. It has a meaning of veracity. I am true. I am genuine. I really am who I say I am. I really am God in the flesh, the Messiah. And what I say is true. I'm not false. It also has to do with faithfulness or loyalty. I will be faithful to my word and I will be faithful to you, my people, my followers. So I am both the Holy One and I am true. I am the true one. This is who Jesus introduces himself as to his church, which is in duress, who's being accused of following a false Messiah. Can you imagine the comfort that they're feeling because of the pushback they're getting by the society around them? I don't know if you've been kind of taking the temperature of culture lately. But we as Christ followers are not always, and I'm not, I'm not having a pity party here either, we're not always viewed in a, in a great light. Maybe in the past we've been viewed as, oh, those poor Christians, how, how quaint and how antiquated they are. But I think in more recent uh, days, we're viewed more as haters, as bigots, as people who are not kind to other people. We are just mean and we're stuck in our old-fashioned ways because we want to hold up the truth of who Jesus is and the gospel. And that does not give us an excuse to be unkind or jerks. There have been plenty of things that happened in Jesus' name that ought not to, that do not have the heart of Jesus. But when we hold up and say, yes, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, we're accused of being exclusive, of being haters. No, we're just saying what Jesus said about himself, the truth about what he said about himself. So, I think we can kind of identify with that in a world that says, 
No, that's not the God I worship. I think oftentimes the God that people worship is the God that they make in their own image. And Jesus is calling us to be faithful to that. To, to what he has revealed in his word, what he's revealed in his gospel. So it is an encouragement to these people of a holy God, of a true God, of a true Savior who sees, who knows, and whom they are following in truth. He continues on and says, Furthermore, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. If you're familiar with the Davidic covenant that God makes, that a descendant of David will sit on his throne and actually usher in the kingdom of God. This actually goes out to another reference in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through uh, 25. And it's about a man named Shebna who is kind of the prime minister of the kingdom. But God is going to replace him because he's acted in self-interest rather than faithfulness to the house of David. And he's going to replace him with Eliakim, who's going to become this prime minister of the royal household. And the key of David will be given to him, and he's going to carry it on his shoulder. Now that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because I carry my keys in my pocket. But the key that we're talking about is not a little key like I'm talking about. It's a big stick or rod that's used as a fulcrum to open up and release bars and gates and doors in order that you might have access into the palace, into the presence of the king. You're only granted access through Eliakim. What he opens no one can shut, and what he closes, no one can open. And what the point is, is that Jesus is the one who gives access to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. He is the access point to be with the Father. There's no other way into the courtyards of heaven. It is through him alone, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he closes, no one can can open. So this is how Jesus introduces himself. That is the power that he has to his church. And then he gives what I call words of recognition recognition to a seemingly weak church. Verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know what's interesting when I'm out in the community and I meet people and they find out I'm a pastor? Guess about nine times out of ten, the question is they ask about our church. How big is it? Well, and then I, I kind of play dumb. I say, what do you mean? Well, how many? How many people are there? Because I don't necessarily measure strength or health in numbers. But that's how our world views things, right? How many people are you able to attract as a crowd? Philadelphia is considered a church of little strength, 
by earthly standards. They are probably of a small size. They probably don't have great influence in their city. And they might even be ostracized. Here's what I want you to know, though. If you look at this whole study of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, as you look at the churches, Jesus has nothing but good things to say about this, quote, weak church. He knows their deeds. He knows them intimately. He knows that they're obedient, that they've kept His word. He knows that they're faithful. They've not denied His name. Here's my observation. You know what God can use? People's gifts and talents to advance His kingdom. You know, Abraham had wealth. Joseph had great administrative skills. Samson had strength. Solomon had wisdom. But over and over again, God seems to use the seemingly weak and less than things to show His strength to accomplish His purposes. If you look on the, your cover of your bulletin, I quoted there 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25-31. through 31, That God uses the weak things of this world to shame those things that are strong. The foolish things to shame those, those things that are wise. James chapter 2, uh, I believe, uh, verse 2, two no, James says, Has God not chosen those things, has God not chosen the poor to be rich in faith? And then the Apostle Paul uh, talks about his own weakness and how he sought the Lord to have this weakness or this besetting um, thorn in the flesh removed. And the answer was, my power is accomplished in weakness. And so he, show, he says, hey, I will rejoice in that. And again, our story about Gladys Isleward, Right? something that none of us maybe would have chose for a missionary, and yet God used her powerfully. The larger churches, the stronger churches, Ephesus, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, they had a lot going for them. Ephesus was a strong church, yet they'd forgotten their first love. Thyatira had things going on with love, faith, and serving more and more, and yet they were tolerating Heresy and idolatry. Sardis had a reputation of being the alive church. And yet Jesus says, you're dead. Laodicea, who believed they were rich. Jesus says, you're poor. You're poor. You're paupers before me. And everything he says to this church is positive. He says to this church, I know the world counts you as insignificant. I value you. I treasure you. Your obedience, your faith, and your faithfulness. This is a great message to a small church especially. Maybe that storefront church that is in some run-down urban place and suburban flight has removed all the churches, save for that one that says, no, we are going to minister to this neighborhood as poor as it is. It might be that rural church up in the sand hills of Nebraska that has to share a pastor. And it's a good Sunday if they hit double digits. Yet they are faithful in that community. 
Maybe it's the house church that has to meet in secret. And they say, what can we do? And maybe it's the church right now in Ukraine who's under duress. And Jesus says, I value you. I value you. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. And I have something for you. And that is words of reward coming to a seemingly weak church. You know, there are six promises that come to this church, the most of all the churches. The first one is a promise of admission. Back to verse 8. See, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now someone said, well, maybe that's an open door for the gospel to go forward because of their location on trade routes. You know, and, and you can see that in Paul's languages, you know, please pray for me that an open door might be made for the gospel. You can read about that in his letters to the Colossians and also uh, to both First and Second Corinthians. But in the context, I think because it's very likely they got kicked out of the, the synagogue for believing in Christ, believed as to be heretics, I believe the open door that Jesus is putting before them is their salvation, their admission into the kingdom of heaven. They may have had the door slammed in their face from the synagogue, but Jesus has opened wide the door for them to enter the king, kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, come on in. It's open. There's no one else who's going to shut this door on you because I'm the gatekeeper. It's open for you. Second of all, there's a promise of vindication. Verse 9. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And this is the synagogue of Satan is the language similar to what the church in Smyrna was experiencing in chapter 2, verse 9. But that seems to be in conflict with the local Jewish population. They probably were kicked out of the synagogue, as I've said already. And these people, these Jews, saw themselves as the true people of God. First of all, their association by their flesh with Abraham, to whom was given the covenant, and also their religious heritage. And yet Jesus calls these Jewish people by birth, the synagogue of Satan. Not because Jesus is an anti-Semite. He is not. He is Jewish himself by his human heritage. But they are doing the will of Satan by persecuting the followers of the true Messiah. You see, in the Scriptures, true Jews, true children of Israel, true children of Abraham... Are, does not have to do with necessarily just being your, your fleshly background. It has to do with your faith. Think about this. There are plenty of people that were children of Abraham that worshipped Baal and Asherah. Their faith was not in the Lord. It was in an idol. They're not going to be found in heaven. Similarly, when the new covenant comes in Jesus Christ... 
to reject God's Messiah and to put your place anywhere else is to have a false faith, to be false to Him. And Jesus says they claim to be Jews, but they are not. They are liars because they are persecuting the people of God's sent Messiah. And they're going to be shown their grave error. He says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet. And the promise of Isaiah 45, 14, which was ironically given to the children of Israel, is going to be slightly changed or reversed. Because now these who are false Jews or false people of Israel will be bowing at the feet of those who are following the true Messiah. Some are Jews and some are Gentiles. And these people will be in a position of humility for how they have humiliated the people of God. And they will acknowledge that I have loved you. They will not only confess that Jesus is Lord, they will confess and the true God, the true Savior, truly loves you. You are His beloved. After being accused of being false, of being heretics, that will be confirmed in a vindication for which they have been slandered. Number three, a promise of protection. Since you have kept my victorious command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now there are two ways you can understand this, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this. But the first is that of a what we call a pre-tribulational rapture in evangelical circles. That is that God will reach down, pull his people off the earth before a set of tribulations, seven, indicated you can read about those in Revelation chapter six through ten. Seven seals, seven trumpets. They'll be removed from that so they won't have to experience that. So that's, that theology is called a pre-tribulational rapture. Be removed from the earth from the tribulations that come to earth. The other thought is to be kept from tribulations that come to the whole earth. Similar to what happened with the people of God in Egypt. The plagues came to the Egyptians and yet they didn't come upon the people of Israel. They'll be on the earth but they won't uh, experience these tribulations that come from God. And this thought comes from John chapter uh, 17 ver- John chapter 17 verse 15 where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, "My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. And that Greek construction is exactly the same, that you keep them from the evil one, as that of what happens here in Revelation. So they're kept from you know, what's, hap- what's coming, even though they're still in the world. Similar thought. Here's where I'm, I'm not going to be a weenie, per se, but I'm not going to make a decision. I'm not going to tell you where I come down on this. You know why? Because this can be a divisive issue, and it's not helpful in that regard. Here's the big thing that we need to know. 
that the promise is that Jesus protects his church from the tribulations of God. And here's where we need to all agree. There's a difference between the wrath of God that comes on people and the wrath of Satan. The wrath of God, it comes and it is judgment. The wrath of Satan, yeah, it may be painful. It might even lead to death. But eventually that even leads to life. Because Revelation chapter 12 talks about those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so as to shrink back from death. Hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the message of the gospel. But Jesus promises to protect his church within that. And here's the last thing I want to say on this matter also. The rapture may indeed come one day and pull God's people from earth. But it didn't happen to this church in Philadelphia. They didn't get raptured. They didn't get removed. But indeed, Jesus did keep them through the tribulations that that, that came around the world at that time. So, a promise that Jesus protects His church from the tribulations from God. Number four, a promise of a coronation. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You know, in the Bible, there are five different descriptions of a crown. They are the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown that's incorruptible, the crown of glory, the crown of rejoicing. If you want that list afterward, you can come talk to me. But I don't think there's any difference in the crown. I think the descriptions that come are just the different aspects of Jesus' uh, victory that people experience from the trials that are coming their way. There's no name given to this crown, but the, the thing is clear. Victory is yours in Christ if you hold on, if you persevere, if you continue in the faith like we talked about last week with Sardis. And listen to this. And then it says, so that no one will take your crown. Well, can somebody take your crown? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. But here's the thing. We live in a world that's either trying to demean what we have in Christ or derail us from what we have in Christ. And Jesus is saying, hold on. The end is in sight. The crown is yours. Just run your race. I don't know if you watched the Olympics, but one of the things that caught my eye, which is really cool, was the men's biathlon, which is Nordic skiing, right, for a a good amount. And then you have to stop at four different stations, two on the ground, two standing up, and you pull out your twenty-two rifle, and you have to shoot targets, I believe, that are 50 yards away, right? And if you miss, if you miss... You have to go to a, a track, kind of like a penalty track for every, and you have to do a small, it's a small track, but you have to do a lap before you can go on. And so what happened is, on the fourth, on the fourth target area, there's a Frenchman, and his name is Quentin Mallet. And he's shooting, and he's got about a 30 second, you know, 30 second lead on everybody else. 
And what he's got to do is shoot clean, because if he hits one, then he puts himself back behind those that are coming up behind him. And he shoots all five targets. And then he gets out, and he knows the victory is his. All he has to do is finish the race. All he had to do was finish the race. Victory was just ahead of him. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. That's what he's saying to us. Just finish the race. Complete the race. And victory, the crown, is yours. A coronation is coming and you will reign with me. And then there's a promise of substantiation. The promise of substantiation. First half of verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make him, listen to this, a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. We've already established that Jesus has given access to the kingdom of God, to his church. And the temple, if you look at the Old Testament theology, is the place where God dwells. So that's what we're heading towards, a place where we'll be with God face to face. And he says, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to make you a pillar. And in Scripture, that image has two things. From a New Testament perspective, it has to do with a foundation of the truth. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It points to the church's mission to be faithful to God's word, to be faithful to the gospel. There is a true God giving a true message that people need to hear. And we need to be square on that message. That's why you don't hear me preaching anywhere from else except the Scriptures, folks. I'm not that creative, first of all. But second of all, my point is, is we are going on the foundation of God's Word and His Gospel. We're exercising the fact that we are the pillar of the truth. But second of all, pillars stand for something that is substantial and foundational. And if you look at the Old Testament temple, when it gets constructed... Solomon has two huge pillars made of bronze put at the entrance of the temple. One is called Jachin, which means established. The other mean, is called Boaz, which means strength. And the reason that Solomon names these things is so that we understand the weightiness of what God is doing. He is establishing his strength, his kingdom. And that's the imagery we get. What God has established is weighty. And even though this world may be saying, hey, what you represent as, church, as a church is lightweight. It's not significant. It's chaff. No. For God's people, we will be brought into his temple, where the presence of God will dwell and will be established as weighty and significant in His presence. Yes, established by God and strong. That's the imagery given to a seemingly weak church. 
God is going to establish you as established and strong. And listen to this. I can get to my spot. Here it is. And never again will they leave it. They'll be established in God's presence forever. No one's going to kick them out. No one's going to shut the door on them. They will be there forever. God says, I'm going to make you a pillar. You may feel weak and insignificant in this world. And that may be what the world says you are. But you are my pillars. That's what you're heading towards. And last of all, the promise of authentication. Second half of verse 12. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on them my new name lest we have any doubt who are the true people of God. This is Jesus' three-feature authentication, right? I'm going to get out my heavenly sharpie, and I'm going to write on them the name of my God. You are sons and daughters of my heavenly Father. I'm going to write on you the name of the city of my God, which is coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. These are citizens of the new Jerusalem heaven and the new earth, my kingdom, which is eternal, which lasts forever. And last of all, I'm going to write on you my new name, that we are Christ's, through whom we have access, whom the door has been opened. I'm going to, he's going to write on us his new name. Now it's interesting, you know, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, it talks about Jesus appearing. He has a new name that nobody knows. He's going to write that name on us. On you and me. And I think that's appropriate. Because who we are today will be totally different than when Jesus comes. When we have been transformed from our lowly bodies to like that of his glorious body. We talked about in Philippians chapter uh, 3.21. We'll be shaped like our Savior and he writes his name on us. You are mine. You are Christ's one. And whatever that name is, I don't know what it is, but he does, and he says, you are mine. You're identified with me forever. And there will never be a doubt. No one can ever call you false or a heretic ever again. So, Jesus says this at the end of every letter to his churches but it's a reframe for us whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches let's consider what jesus has said to this church what he's saying to you and to me are we discouraged sometimes because we're not as big as some churches or we don't have certain resources of other churches or we don't have the talent or the wealth of another church? Are we discouraged? Or, even worse, are we looking down on another church? Because they don't have what we have in the building and the personnel. Is that how we're looking with the eyes, really, of this world? 
Jesus says, I want to give you a totally different way to see things. And personally, are we comparing ourselves with others? Of our gifting, are we discouraged? Are we conflated in our opinion of ourselves? Jesus says, get your eyes off of that. Get your eyes on what I can do. On what I can do. One of my favorite passages is in Zechariah chapter 4. It's where the crown prince Zerubbabel comes back after 70 years of exile in Babylon. And he is charged with rebuilding the temple. Jerusalem is you know, just rubble-ridden. It is leveled and this just seems insurmountable. And yet, this crown prince is called to do this. And this is where we read the words, it's not by might. And it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And this is what God says about Zerubbabel, who has this momentous task. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. And when you know that the Lord of hosts has sent you sent me to you for who has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel and that is that image of Zerubbabel holding this plumb line which is a vertical level to make sure that this temple that's being built is straight and it's not by might it's not by power but by my spirit That's what Jesus wants to say to you, to me. Whether we're applying that to ourselves or somebody else in the kingdom of God. We cannot despise the day of small beginnings. And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Because some of these things will not be revealed until glory. We're not going to see them on this side of heaven. There won't be a movie probably made about Berean Community Church. But God is calling us, Jesus is calling us to be faithful, not successful. At least in the eyes of the world. He is calling us to be faithful. To hold on to Him, His Word, His Gospel, and not deny His name. Because He has opened up a door for us that no one can shut. And that's what I want you to grab onto today. Let me pray and worship team when you come and close us, please. Lord, I thank you for this encouraging word. I thank you for um, just your message to the church that we can grab onto. And I thank you that sometimes what we can't see according to worldly standards you are doing and are going to bring a later result that we can rejoice in. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming one day. Until then, make us faithful to hold on to you, to your word, to your name, to your gospel, and to be your people, even if we're viewed as weak and despised, even as haters and bigots. Lord, let the love of Christ show through us to a world that so desperately needs this gospel. And so, Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand.